Hello and welcome to Live from the Space Shed, a podcast all about space and science hosted by me, John Spooner, and me. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, I mean you. <laughs> Mini John. Long story short, a few years ago I accidentally set up my own space agency based out of the shed at the bottom of my garden. Turns out that if you go around telling people you're the director of human spaceflight operations for the unlimited space agency wearing an orange spacesuit, more people than you might think want to play along. And now the British astronaut Tim Peake is our patron and he took me with him to space. <laughs> yeah, yeah, alright, he took you with him to space. So Mini John became UNSA's first astronaut. Since then, we've been touring in UNSA's mobile headquarters, The Space Shed, to festivals like Latitude and Blue Dot, telling stories, talking to some super cool space and science people, and we've recorded our chats so you can find out about their amazing work as well. Yes, Mini John. My favourite particle. You've been having a sneak listen to this week's interview with particle physicist Professor John Butterworth, haven't you? So this week's guest in Live from the Space Shed is Professor John Butterworth, who works on the Large Hadron Collider's Atlas experiment at CERN. It's alright MJ, I didn't know what any of those things were either. Luckily, John, Professor John, who visited us at Latitude Festival, describes them and his work brilliantly. I know, it's almost like he's a professor of physics or something. Woohoo! Okay, let's go. Enjoy this episode of Live from the Space Shed. Wow, even I didn't know if we were going to take off there. <laughs> hey, hey, welcome. Uh, my name's John, John Spooner. I am the Director of Human Space Flight Operations here at the Unlimited Space Agency. Welcome to Answer HQ, the Space Shed. Give it up for the Space Shed. Woo! Yeah. Hey, tell you what, a mid-afternoon audience is much more vocal than a 12 o'clock audience, I tell you. Hey. Later today at six o'clock, we've got some DJs playing. We've got our science in the house DJs, uh, part real particle physicists, doing a, a set here later at six o'clock. Tomorrow, we've got some very cool people joining us. We've got astrophysicists. We've got Abby Hutty. She is the lead engineer on the Mars ExoMars rover project. She is sending a vehicle to another planet. She's going to be here talking to us. And I'm going to tell a story about how I hacked my way into space. That's all tomorrow. But this afternoon, one of my favourite things about my job is I get to meet some very cool people, uh, very clever people, and we're joined by one this afternoon. He is a particle physicist, um, has worked extensively on the Large Hadron Collider over at CERN. Would you like to meet him? I'm loving this afternoon, audience. Please give it up. A big latitude welcome to Professor John Butterworth. John, welcome. Thanks very much for joining us in the shed this afternoon. What a build-up. Yeah. <laughs> There's a, a little prize for anyone that guesses the tune. We did a version of the tune. Starman! Yeah, yeah, you get, you get a prize. Um, it's not actually all that appropriate, is it? Because 
You're not an astrophysicist. David Bowie is always appropriate. I agree with you. Uh, John, thanks so much for coming in today. You are, you are actually a particle physicist. I am actually that thing, yes. Yeah, and you're a professor of physics at UCL. You've worked, as I was saying, extensively on the Atlas experiment at the Large Hadron Collider in CERN. That's right. You basically understand everything there is to understand about the universe. As well as anyone else, yes. You see, this is, I love this. This is always the, the answer from the scientists. Yeah, we've kind of... Uh. <laughs> um, and you're here. To, I mean, it all sounds very impressive. Uh, well, it is. It is. It is. Well, that's good to know. Um, but I don't know. I mean, what is, what is particle physics? <laughs> particle physics is, is the, it's a kind of quest to understand what the smallest constituents and most fundamental laws of nature are. So... If you take a piece of material and you, say, take a, a piece of grass or a piece of this fence, and you cut it in half and you cut it in half and you keep doing that, we know at some point you'll get to molecules and then you'll get to atoms and then you'll break the atoms up into electrons and protons and then you'll break them up. The question that particle physics is trying to answer is, does that process stop? Are there smallest things or can you just keep going forever? And if it does stop, what are the smallest things and how do they interact with each other and how do they make up the universe that we see around us? They sound like amazing questions to be trying to answer. What is the answer? Um, the, <laughs> <laughs> the answer at the moment, and you should bear in mind that science is always provisional, so it's, uh, it's the answer that we have which is consistent with our mathematical knowledge and with all the experiments we've been able to do, of which the best is, of course, the Large Hadron Collider. And the answer at the moment is something we call the standard model of particle physics. It's one of those incredibly sexy names we have for things like the Big Bang or, you know... Yeah, yeah. it sounds a bit boring. The standard model. It's it's like um, when I grew up in Manchester and the, the standard Indian was was a name a lot of the Indians were called the standard Indian. And I used to wonder why they chose that name and I think it's because it, it sets the standard. It's a really high standard and it's it's kind of the thing you have to reach in order to call yourself an Indian restaurant. And I think we're kind of like that with the standard model. It's a proper model that describes what the, the fundamental constituents are, which is electrons, which you may have you may know you may have heard of electrons. They they carry electric current. Um, and then there are quarks, which you might not have heard of, but quarks are, are inside the atomic nucleus, so they make up protons and neutrons, which are what make up all the elements in the periodic table. And that, they are the, the most important bits, really, of the standard model. Okay, so the standard model isn't as boring as it sounds. It's a really, really cool model. Yes. I think it's, you should in call fact, it that. It's, it's more of a theory than a model, actually, as well. Uh, it's not even really... It's not only a model. It's not really fair. This really gets us into it, doesn't it? Yeah, you say all of this, and then it's always a qualification... Oh, look, my desk's moving. <laughs> That's a spoiler for later if anyone's coming back to see the show tomorrow. Pretend you didn't see that. <laughs> um... So you've got the standard model, and that's all very cool. It sounds brilliant. But why? I mean, this is something... How long have you been a particle physicist? Um, I, I guess... I'm trying to work... That's a really hard question. <laughs> um, 25 years, I guess, by now, since I did my years. PhD, yeah. Okay, so why have you been, why have you been a particle... What, 25 years of your life dedicated to this, for why? I did do some other stuff. As well. it, is a, it is a thing worth dedicating your career to, I think. And um, it's really the... the like any job, it has its day-to-day challenges. It has things where you have too many meetings or you have bits of kit that don't work properly or you spend too long in airports or all those stuff go with it. But they're in many jobs. But underlying it is this idea that we're doing all this, this stuff, this amazing 
these amazing experiments. I'm, I'm not a theorist, so I'm much more impressed by our experiments than by the standard model theory, I have to say. But the bits of kit we get to build and play with and uh, the ideas that we're testing and extending are so... Um, you have to pinch yourself every now and then. You have a boring day at the office, and then you come back and go, yeah, but yeah, but this is why we're doing it. And look what we've done, what we're doing. And over 25 years, it adds up to quite a lot. Um, I think it's really important that human beings look around our, our, ourselves and don't just see like the beautiful trees and the sunshine and the other people, but also try and understand how it works. And I think there are, the frontiers of human knowledge are really important. Particle physics isn't the only one. Space is another. Um, understanding how biological life works is another. Um, particle physics isn't going to help you much with that. But understanding what the fundamental laws of nature are and what the fundamental bits and pieces that we're made of are is a really exciting and important frontier of knowledge that I, I like working at. It's, I, I think it's a super cool job. I love uh, particle physics. It's not it as was... cool as being a spaceman, I have to say, but there you go. Well, it ha yeah, it has its moments, I'll be honest. Um, but the thing that I loved about, uh, a few years ago, I really got into my quantum physics, love quantum physics. But it was the moment where I understood and realised, someone explained to me that basically we are all just atoms, all fundamentally, profoundly connected to each other, physically and everything else in the universe. And the atoms that are me now, they weren't the atoms that were me three months ago. Yeah, they're shifting around. And, and that makes me feel really and you, and cool you know, about being in the universe. You know where some of them come from. So there's my wedding band here, right? This, ah. is, this is made of um, gold and platinum. Gold and platinum are really hard to make because they're really heavy nuclear elements. The nuclei are really heavy. So in the Big Bang, you get hydrogen and helium made and a bit of lithium. And then when stars burn, they'll make carbon and oxygen and stuff. But you can't get anything heavier than, than iron made in a star until it explodes. Then you get a supernova, and when it's burning so fast, it can make really heavy elements. Even that isn't enough now. It's probably gold and platinum. Most of the gold and platinum around on the Earth was made when two stars blew up um, and then turned into neutron stars, super dense stars, and then collided with each other. And it's something that violent it takes to make really, really heavy nuclei. So this wedding band was probably made in a neutron star collision about five billion years ago. If that doesn't blow your mind, I don't know what does. I didn't know that. I've got a platinum one. I didn't know that. That's so cool. Five billion years old. Um, does that increase the value of it? Even more. <laughs> if you could point out which star it came from, it might do. You know, you can, can have your little certificate on it. But I'm going to try. I'm going to try. Um, so these experiments, so you're not a theoretical physicist, you're not just imagining stuff, you're actually doing experiments to find out for sure how these ideas work. Yeah. One of the biggest, coolest experiments that you were working on, as I said, was the ATLAS experiment at the Large Hadron Collider in CERN. Now, let's just work on the basis that maybe some people don't know what ATLAS or the LHC or even CERN is. What are those things? Right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so CERN is the Centre European Recherche Nucléaire, which is, uh, is the European Centre for Nuclear Research. You can probably tell that it's a bilingual lab. In fact, the UK is about 20% of it, and you don't have to speak French to work there, um, as you can tell from my accident. <laughs> um, or, or the way I pronounce the lab's name, I guess. Um, but it, it's, it was founded in the 50s. It's, um, we all pay, everyone who's a taxpayer anyway, um, so not our own banks, but everyone else pretty much, will pay um, about a pound, um, two pounds a year into it, and has been doing for a long time now um, and that has enabled us to do this cutting edge research there and 
most European countries are, are members of it, and also the US and Japan and Russia and China, Japan, uh, they all collaborate there as well. So that's the enterprise that it is. It's like the International Space Station, this massive international collaboration yep. where the Large Hadron Collider lives. Yeah, so the Large Hadron Collider is this big, uh, it, it's uh, 27 kilometers of magnets in a tunnel under Geneva. Actually, most of it's under France, so it's on the French-Swiss border. The main lab is in, is in Switzerland, in Geneva, but the, um, the rest of it is... Um, is mostly in the, under the Jura Mountains in France. It's about um, 50, 80 meters underground most of the time. Um, most it, of the time. Well, it, it varies in depth. No, oh, it, see, it, it doesn't, doesn't move. move. It doesn't <laughs> <laughs> God, that would be cool. Um, uh, it, it's um, yeah, it goes under the mountains. So sometimes it's deeper. Um, some of it is deeper. But um, in that tunnel, we have the the um, we're steering and accelerating the two highest energy beams of particles we've ever had, which are protons, which is essentially um, the, the nucleus of a hydrogen atom going in opposite directions and at four places on that ring we bring them into head-on collision with each other and we smash them to pieces. It's our subtle way of trying to work out what's going on inside them basically. And the, So that's CERN and the Large Hadron Collider. Excellent answers and, already. And then ATLAS is basically the, one of the digital cameras, if you like, that we built to surround those collisions in order to record what actually happens when these protons collide. And that's what I helped build. I, I was uh, part of the UK effort that built big chunks of that. Who thinks that's a really cool job? <laughs> that's excellent. Your pound a year is doing good work. Um, let's not now. I was going to get into I'd thank, I'd I like to thank all you taxpayers for funding it because yeah. I'm very privileged to work on it, I have to say. We shouldn't bring up Brexit, right? Let's not do Brexit now. I didn't mention it. No, 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 no. no I, was I, just I did peripherally, didn't I? I'm yeah. sorry. No, no, I'm no. Sorry. It's all good. It's all good. It's all good. And a few years ago, so this is a very cool experiment. And a few years ago, there was a bit, I've got it written down here. There was something. Uh, called the Higgs boson or something. Yeah, a big that's fuss. Right. I remember in the news there was some people talking going on and on about the Higgs boson. Yep. What's, what was, what's, what's that? So the Higgs boson is a kind of, it's the, you know when you build an arch, an archway and you have a keystone in the top and if you don't put the keystone in right the whole thing falls over. The Higgs boson is, is sort of the keystone of the standard model. So the standard model describes electrons and quarks and things. The universe. Uh, the building blocks of the yeah basically yes sorry I don't, so know, why no, no, I don't know why I'm you're the professor sorry I was <laughs> no, just no you're uh, right you're right and all it allows those particles to actually be infinitely small so this question about can I keep dividing things up forever the answer is no because you reach electrons and quarks and they're actually infinitely small and they're indivisible now that is a very weird concept uh, that, yeah. that you have an, in, an, in, an infinitely small particle it's even weirder when you have a, um, a, the idea that this infinitely small particle actually has mass it has substance and they do. And that was not only conceptually weird, it turns out that's mathematically very difficult to achieve. It's very difficult to write down a theory that will allow you to predict stuff and predict the way these particles make up the universe and give them mass and have them infinitely small. And the only way we worked out to do this was actually two Belgian physicists called um, Francois Braut and, and um, Englert, Francois Englert and Robert Braut, sorry, and um, Peter Higgs in Edinburgh. And they worked out a mathematically consistent way of allowing this to happen, that you can have infinitely small particles with mass. Even before we actually knew about quarks, they were way ahead of the game. It was 1961 or something. It was like, I don't know. So before I was born, we'd been wondering whether there's been a Higgs around, right? 
and no one really took it very seriously at the time because we didn't know the rest of the standard model anyway. But as the rest of the standard model fell into place, partly because of some theoret good theoretical work and mainly because the experiments were going, well, this is the way it is, this is what happens, it became more and more obvious that we really needed this Higgs boson. And there's nothing else like it in nature. It's a unique object. We call it a, a scalar boson, which is to do with how much um, spin, it, whether it spins or not. In fact, it doesn't spin at all. That's why it's, it's, it's a scalar. Um, that's what scalar means. And all the others do. So it's a really unique thing. Non-spinning. Non-spinning particle, yeah, basically. And it's, it's weird because it's there even in empty space. So if you remove all the energy you can from a bit of space, you'll remove all the electrons, you'll remove all the electromagnetic fields, all the photons, you'll remove all the matter, all the quarks, but there'll be Higgs bosons still there. There'll be a Higgs field still there. If you want to remove the Higgs, you have to put energy in. So the lowest energy bit of the universe has Higgs, the Higgs there. And it's by sticking to that Higgs that all the other things get mass. So it's, a kind of, and, and it's only with, by that that the, all the other predictions of the standard model only make sense if this Higgs boson actually work, is there. So we were quite tense. We were quite keen to find it. Right? Um, or, or show, or it would in some ways be more fun to prove it wasn't there because that would amend the theorists would have to go back to the drawing board. But... This is one of my favourite things about uh, the job that you do, that you like to fail because the point at which you, you've got an idea and the point at which you develop an experiment and it doesn't come out the way that you expected, you learn something new Absolutely, from doing yeah. that. I think it's Isaac Asimov quote that I really like. That he says that the most exciting words in science are not Eureka, but that's weird. <laughs> <laughs> There's a, one of my favourite quotes, is, it's an Einstein quote, but he describes uh, it's his teleportation back to the quantum stuff. There's uh, the idea of uh, quantum entanglement, where yeah. objects change state at the same time, with no, no time in between, across any distance in the universe. And no one can explain it. And his description of it was, well, it's spooky action at a distance. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah. He hated it, but it's, it but it's just but how it, happens. it works. It happens, yeah. 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 He, he spent his whole later career trying to prove it didn't, but it did. So basically, you made... An experiment with lots of other people. Yeah, about six thousand other people. On the, uh, probably a lot more than that actually. But the papers were signed by three thousand people each. Yes. That's cool. And so you all got to share this thing that you made discovered that proved that the standard model of physics is correct. And this is yeah. now a fact. It is. Yes. The it's weird a... thing is a fact. Yes. That's cool. That's the what the hadron collider has been doing. We discovered the Higgs boson. It's due for an upgrade quite soon indeed yeah this is a better name i like this name it's the what the high luminosity upgrade the high luminosity upgrade hands up who wants a high luminosity upgrade that sounds like something yeah loads of us that sounds like something you should be able to get painted on your face here yeah. what, what is it really what does it do so but to find out new stuff with a new collider it typically needs to, to push the the boundaries in one of two ways so one way is that you have higher energy particles than you ever had before and what that gets you is you can create heavier new particles because E equals mc squared, so more energy means more mass, and therefore you can create new stuff. The other, we've kind of pushed the, the Large Hadron Collider as far as it will go now in energy. It's not going to go any higher energy without a radical, well, a, probably a new tunnel, actually. That's another story. But the other way you can do it is, is um, by collecting more data, just building up the statistics, and that's the luminosity. So the luminosity is essentially the brightness of the beams. It's how many protons are you colliding per second. We're stepping that up and we're turning up the power basically in that way. What that does for you is like because it's it's because it's quantum mechanics. It's all statistical. Okay, so I, my favourite analogy of it is is if you're rolling a dice. Right, so you have a dice and you want to check whether the dice is fair or not. Okay, 
So you roll the dice six times, and you might expect that you would have that one, two, three, four, five, and six would all come up once. But actually, you know, probably that's not going to happen. You don't really learn anything by rolling the dice six times. But if you roll it six million times, you better get about a million of each. Otherwise, someone's being silly with the dice, and the dice isn't fair. And that's the kind of situation we're in, in that we want to know, is this particle really the Higgs? Is the standard model really predicting its behavior? Is it really doing what it wants? And with the data we have at the moment, we can say, well, probably to within about 20%. But if we, roll the, if we turn up the luminosity, which means rolling the dice many, many more times, colliding many, many more protons, then we can see whether that's true to maybe 1% or maybe 1.1%, depending on what it is we're measuring. And if it's not true, then we found something new again. Then, we, then we've broken the standard model again, and we, we maybe get a clue to some of the questions the standard model doesn't answer. But you say, you say that the standard model is it's a fact, and it describes the, the universe as best as we can right now. But what, what does it mean? If you, how does the universe or understanding of it change? Well, the, the standard model is, I mean, it's a fact in the sense that it gives you really excellent predictions for all the things we've measured so far. Pretty much, okay? And, and that, that's not going to change. Even if we find the standard model is not the whole story, then those predictions won't change because we know they're right. We've verified them with experiment. But you're always trying to extend the theory. So uh, with Newton, um, for instance, Newton's laws, they basically work, right? Because Einstein, in a sense, proved Newton was wrong, but he didn't invalidate. We still learn Newton's laws at school because they're good enough for most things in everyday life. It's only when you're going close to the speed of light that you need to worry about special relativity, for instance. Um, but Einstein did build a bigger theory that contained Newton's laws for, as well. So they're still there and still right. But there's more there because Einstein got a better theory. What we're looking for is the same situation with the standard model. The standard model will still be there in the way that Newton's laws are still there. But we want a bigger theory because there are some things that the standard model doesn't explain, there, which we can talk about if you like, but they're dark energy, dark matter, the missing antimatter in the universe, where gravity fits in. There's all kinds of stuff on our shopping list that the standard model doesn't really help. So if we saw a deviation at the Large Hadron Collider, we'd hope it was a kind of loose end we could tug at to answer some of those questions. Let's talk about a little bit about dark energy. I'm going to um, open up. I'm going to get to ask... In fact, first things first. Quick show of hands. Before you arrived here, show of hands, who knew what the LHC and the Atlas experiment were? Who, and show of hands, who didn't? And keep your hands up if you now do. Yeah, you've done really well. You've, that's great. Look at that. That's, uh, that's uh, education in action right there. And dark energy and dark matter, two different things. Dark energy, dark matter. My understanding is that that's just all the other stuff that we don't understand in the universe. That's pretty much it, yes. And the, 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 I guess the question you ask is, why do we think there is other stuff there? And yeah. Dark energy is a little flaky. I mean, dark energy is really, a, they've named it dark energy sort of, in tribute to dark matter, and I'll talk about dark matter in a minute because I take it more seriously. They're playing at 8pm on yeah. the Six Music stage tonight. Yeah. They, they, um, <laughs> the dark energy is really just a way of, uh, you could just say the universe is increasing its rate of expansion. That's a bit of a surprise. We don't know why, so we'll call it dark energy. Okay, So leave that aside, right? Let's, um, they'll let the astronomers sort that one out at some point. Dark matter is, is, to me, much more serious of an issue, actually, because it's quite easy to see the evidence for it, for why we think there's something there. So if you look at the, the, rotate, the way galaxies... We see galaxies, we see they're spinning, and we can see that they're spinning because we measure the light from the stars and we can see the Doppler shift. So we see it red-shifted or blue-shifted, and from that we can measure the velocity, the, with the, the speed with which they're turning. 
It's so I, matter of fact, isn't it? Yeah, we can see the galaxies and we know exactly how fast they're spinning. Yep. That's yeah. fine. Yeah, ca- sorry, carry on. No, it's pretty cool. Only, only because of quantum mechanics and, and cool telescopes, but yes. So we do that. And then we can also estimate how much matter there is in the galaxies, basically, because we can see it burning, and we can see the infrared, all, all different wavelengths. We can see the infrared from the gases. We can see the stars burning. And therefore, we know how much gravitational force there is holding these galaxies together. And if you put those sums together, knowing what we do about the mass and what we do about gravity, then they shouldn't be working. They should be flying apart. They're spinning too fast. Okay? So it's like you imagine a, um, a roundabout. It's just spinning so fast that the metal can't hold it together and it will fly to pieces. That's pretty much what the galaxies should be doing because there isn't enough mass to produce enough gravity to hold them together. So it should be, it should look like a really bad day at the playground and a massive new stars everywhere, going it, all over the place. But yeah, it isn't, it's, everyone's uh, having no. a lovely time. That's right. And so you've got two ways out of that. One, either you fundamentally misunderstood something about gravity, which, which is, is general possible. relativity, which is possible, or two, there's a lot more matter in these galaxies than we can see, and we call that matter, that missing matter, dark matter, and it's not something that's in the standard model. And is that something that the LHC will help us to find? We really hope so. To be honest, there are some kinds of dark matter the LHC will never be able to see. There are other kinds that we might even produce in the lab and, and say, look, we've got some dark matter, here it is, kind of thing. So, so it, and, and there are also really cool experiments underground in, in mines, hiding away from the radiation from the atmosphere, looking for dark matter bumping into their detectors as well so there's a there's a lot of ways you can approach looking for dark matter and there are theories trying to change general relativity to try and explain the the try and change gravity so that we don't need that matter as well but i think most people that einstein was really clever you know <laughs> it's, it's really quite hard to change general, general relativity in any way that makes any sense so that i think the consensus is probably dark matter is there although there is still people saying well what if what what if gravity's wrong instead and the high luminosity upgrade is, when's that going to happen? When do we find out? To when be honest, sneakily, we're sort of doing it now. Um, so we're running at the moment with higher luminosity than we had last year, and we're, we're getting there gradually. But at the end of this year, we'll, have, we'll shut down for a couple of years where we go and refurbish parts of the detector, but mainly the, the um, accelerator. So the, the first stage of the high luminosity upgrade will be, what does that, 2021? And then um, we have another stage of it after that where we replace some big chunks of the detector. So it's going to be over the next decade or so. It's, going to, it's not a quick game, particle physics, I'm afraid, but it's, it, we're getting there. No, but in 10 years, what you're saying is, is that we really could know a huge amount more about the universe and what that extra matter in it is. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, we're, with the Higgs, I could have given you a more precise date. I'd say, well, then we'll know whether or not there's a Higgs, right? That matter, it's much more open-ended. We're kind of off. We've had a, all my career, right, until 2012 when we found the Higgs. We've had a very clear theoretical map of what we should be looking for as experimentalists. Now we have no map. So we, we've got an unanswered questions, but we don't have um, a recipe for going how to go and answer them. We're really exploring in the dark, shining. The LHC is shining a light in places we've never looked before, and we don't know whether they're going to be empty or whether they're going to have the most exciting new thing in there that we've ever seen. This is cool. So 10 years. There's some of our audience members here. I'm mean, just wondering, some of the younger people that are here, or some of the older people if you want a career change, but you might be in a perfect position. Another show of hands. Who's interested in maybe helping to find out what dark matter is? Okay, we've got some... Yeah, I don't want to dampen your spirits, but you might... <laughs> but there's some... Hey! <laughs> there's some guys here. So how, how, would, how, would you, how old are you? 
10. So 20, that would be perfect to be involved yeah. in these sorts of experiments. You could, could, how be, would could you, be your PhD thesis. How would you go about from the age of 10 to now, in 10 years' time, maybe being part of that? Well, um, you, well, first of all, go to cool events like this and listen to people like him. Well, um, he, he, but, he, so you're doing that right. Um, I basically, stay curious at school and, and don't just do physics. Learn all. When you get a chance to learn new things, learn them because you never know what bit of information is going to be useful. And also, by staying curious, you just keep your brain fit and it works really well. And then, obviously, if you want to do physics, then when you start choosing your options at secondary school, choose maths and physics and chemistry probably as well. And, and, and then go through university doing that as well. That's what I did. And, um, and it, it kind of works in the end. And, and, but, but, you know, don't um, stay curious about everything. Don't, I, w I would advise you not to lock on too closely because thing, it, when you're 10 because things change. And even when I was at university, I wasn't sure I wanted to go and be a particle physicist as a job. I, I did it because I was, it was so exciting and I wanted to. But I didn't, you know, I, I, try, I thought about doing other things on the way. But, yeah, it's all possible. There are lots of possibilities and this is a great one. That's clear advice. Do you think he might do it? Yes. <laughs> He's going to find some dark matter. <laughs> it would be brilliant. When, if you do, then look me at wherever I am in some geriatric place at UCL in my, in my office and, and come and show me first. But I was going to say as well, make sure you get John's number before you leave so that in a few years' time you can write to him and say, ah, oh, do you remember that time at Latitude and I said I was going to find some dark matter? I'm that guy. Maybe you could be his supervisor on his PhD. That would be ace. Just planting seeds. Um, Brilliant. So I, that's a beautiful, excellent, clear explanation for me of what the LHC is, where it's going, what it wants to do. Like I say, you've got lots of experience doing lots of things. You, uh, my take on it is that you basically understand everything there is to know about the universe. <laughs> that's, that's the position I'm taking. At which point... So uh, you stick to physics, I'll, I might give you a run for your money. But. Yeah, OK, you can, you, you can take the physics slant on any of the questions that we might now get. Does anyone here, given all of that amazing stuff, have a question that they can ask? This is, it's not every day you get to me and have your questions answered from someone that works that closely with this sort of experiment at this level. So there is... Yes, the, uh, we, hang on a minute, we've got um, some loud hailers here. We're going to put... One against your mouth. Go on, Flora. Why does the universe Such a good question. Why does the universe keep expanding? I like the fact that you you just know that that's happening. For anyone else that didn't know that, the universe is expanding. Uh, why does it do that? And, and does it have anything to do with dark matter, John? Right. So it's expanding. We, this is what we think. And bear in mind, this is theory. So there's evidence for it, but it's not guaranteed to be right. During my career, our ideas about this have changed quite a lot because of evidence. So, but we do what, what we're pretty sure of is that there was a big bang and it all kicked off. Um, now, why it kicked off is something that we do still argue and discuss about. There are some physical models about how suddenly a big wad of energy was dumped in, in space and expanded. But once it's expanding, there are, there are, um, what you would think is going on then is that dark matter, which you mentioned, and normal matter, actually, will just be pulling it down. They'll be attracting each other and trying to slow it down. So you can imagine it expanding and then gradually slowing down as gravity kind of puts the brakes on. Now, we know as of about 15 years ago um, that that's not actually what's happening. The, the universe is actually speeding up. So dark matter and normal matter are slowing it down. But this thing that we mentioned called dark energy is what we call the fact that we've observed that it's speeding up. Now, we don't actually know why. We don't know what's doing that. But we know something is. 
So, did that answer your question? A bit, yes. And again, you're, I'm going to guess you're maybe six years old. You are. That's okay. a, what a great guess. Um, again, you can uh, get together with this guy down at the front, and together you can work out whether or not any of those things are affecting it. Uh, you'll create some dark matter, and together you're going to answer all the questions about the universe. That's my vision for you. Don't let me down. <laughs> yes! <laughs> Brilliant. Yes, Phil, we've got an excited person here. How quickly do particles go around the Large Hadron Collider? Good question. And I always struggle with the answer because it's 99.9999999. And I, I always get, forget how many idea. nines percent the speed of light. So it, practically it's the speed of light. It's slightly below. And the, the reason, but that was true of the colliders that were running when I was your age. When, when, yeah, when I was your age. So the, the, one of the frustrating things about being a speed freak in physics is you can't go faster than the speed of light. So what, what, we, what happens is as you accelerate a particle, as you put more energy in to make it go faster, it goes faster and faster, but up to a point it sort of stops going fast. And it's... Um, it stops going faster and faster, and it kind of approaches the speed of light and can never go past it. It still has more energy, though, and that's what we're doing. So we have higher energy, really, really high energy beams, but they don't go any faster than the speed of light. So the speed of light is the answer, really. The speed of light thing's annoying to it's everyone, It's a bit right? irritating, yes. Yeah. Why, why is it so annoying? Why can't you go at the speed of light? Well, it's Einstein again, really. He's um, annoying he's as well, annoying. isn't he? He's annoying, yeah, yeah. The, the, the way that the universe seems to be set up is anything that has mass can't go faster than light and anything that has no mass must go at the speed of light can't go slower or faster that's and just the way it is that's the way the equations of motion actually seem to work so okay yeah that's your question really clearly answered isn't it basically the speed of light which is fast yes young man on the front here Oh, I like it. What's your favourite particle, John? I, I have to give, for consistency, I'll have to give the answer I gave on the infinite monkey cage, which is the proton, because it's strong and stable. <laughs> which would be a, a refreshing break at the moment, I have like. to say. But I like the proton because it is, it is actually, there's a serious point uh, other than the, the political gag, which is well past its sell by date now. Um, the, the, um, the, the Thanks very <laughs> no, much. No, it's my gag. It's all right. <laughs> but the... It, it's unusual because it's, it's like an electron is one of the infinitely small particles in the standard model. That's pretty cool. Neutrinos too. But, but the proton is, is made of quarks. So it's not a fundamental particle. But yet it seems to last forever. It's, its lifetime is much longer than the age of the universe. And I find that kind of fascinating. And what I did a lot of my PhD one was, on was actually the strong, what we call the strong nuclear force, which is what holds the quarks together inside the proton. And so I like it for all those reasons. It's great. What's your also, it cures cancer, but there we are. Oh, just slip that in. <laughs> um, let's not get into that, because no, okay. that is a whole other conversation. Is, yeah. But yeah. Th that's one of the really exciting things as well. There's another um, speaker that uh, we were... Susie Sheehy, who um, couldn't join us this weekend, sadly. But that's the work she's doing, right? She's using protons Absolutely, to yeah, no, work towards curing cancer. They're building a, a, in Manchester, in the Christie, and opposite my office in UCL, building two big proton therapy centres to do that, just that. Which would be a cool thing, right? Um, what's your favourite particle? Same, the proton. Mine's, do you want to know? Mine's the neutrino. Uh, I like neutrino's neutrino. pretty good, yeah. yeah, yeah. Which like one, though? There are three, and they keep mixing up. Which one's your favourite? Tau. The tau. 
Um, Good choice. Yeah. Well, I, someone described them to me once. I don't know if this is still true, but neutrinos are cool because they're the the smallest amount of reality ever imagined by a human being. Yeah, I think that's. Fair. I thought that was really beautifully poetic. Uh, one person nodding. I'll get on. So, any more questions? Yes. Let's have uh, this woman here in the green top. Oh, good one. Are there other universes? Are there, are there um, other big bangs? Um, the first point would be to say that is no one really knows, right? If as a physicist, you have to say that we don't really know. Um, the, I, personally, and it's a personal take, it seems at the moment probably quite likely that there, there are. So in my career, the, 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 what we think of about the Big Bang has changed a lot over the while I've been a physicist. So we used to think there was a Big Bang for reasons unknown. And then there was a period of inflation where there's some field, some quantum field that boosts the whole expansion of the universe. And then that stops and then things carry on as normal. And we understand everything post-inflation quite well, but we don't understand inflation very well. This is all in the first 10 to the minus 20th of a second or something of the, of the universe. What we think now is that's not, we don't think of it that way. We think of it, there being a period of inflation and then the Big Bang. So the Big Bang is now the end of inflation when all this rapidly expanding quantum field dumps into normal matter and bang you get everything the universe starts off and in that model it's quite plausible that inflation is going on across a whole load of space-time dimensions all the time and every now and then it just goes bang in different places and there could be a lot of them going on so this is only a theory it's only a guess but it, to me that seems like the most natural theory and it's consistent with our observations but Honestly, we can't observe these other universes. All we can do is observe evidence that inflation actually happens. And we do have pretty good evidence for that. And it seems mathematically most plausible that that's probably what's going on. But it's a guess. It's not, a, it's not science. It's speculative theoretical physics. But, but it's got some evidence behind it. I, I would take from that that the answer is yes. So when they ask you, what year, what, what year are they? They're your students? Secondary students, but yeah, you can spin the most. Go, yeah, actually, I was at Latitude last weekend. Oh, well done, miss. And I found out that there are many other universes, which is great. Anyone else got us a question for John? Yes. Oh, hang on, we have to wait for the loud hailer. You're very close, but. You talk about having a torch and looking in dark places, as it were. How do you know what you're looking for? Are, is there a way of knowing what you're looking How do you know what? what How do we it? know what we're looking for? Yeah. It's, a, it's a really good question. Um, we lose a lot of sleep over it, actually, because we can't possibly record, even on something like the Large Hadron Collider, we can't possibly record all the data from every single collision. So we have to make some pre-selections. And your nightmare is always that you've gone through all this trouble of, of making these collisions, and then you've, by mistake, thrown the interesting ones away. So we go through enormous lengths to try and... Um, and not do that and to dream up possible weird ways we could be losing them or that new things could be appearing that we haven't thought of and we rely on theory i mean i've drawn a distinction between theorists and experimentalists but to be honest mostly we work as a, as a team and they're, they're suggesting way weird things we might have missed and we're building detectors to to see them um the other way so that's one way the, the other way is um that we do now because we found the higgs we have a very precise theory of what should happen 
so we can go and test what should happen in ways that we've never observed before. So that's a kind of the negative of it, in that you say, well, we, we know what should happen, so if it doesn't happen, that's something new as well. So you can do both. You look for really weird things that you might have missed, and it's very hard to be definitive in that, and we do keep cooking up new, new things that we should go look for in our data and doing data mining on these samples we do have and redesigning the filters to see if we can pick up things we might have missed. But the other thing is go and measure what the theory says should happen in some very challenging places in, in the dark out there. And if, it doesn't, if what we see doesn't agree with the theory, that's also a clue that something new is going on. So there's a kind of two approaches. I mostly, personally, work on the latter one of those, where I make precise measurements of things that we, of, of new processes of Higgs production and, and vector boson, thing, things that we, we haven't ever seen before, but the theory makes a prediction for. Um, so that's, that's what I do, but there are lots of people doing the other thing too. Sounds like a, a mix of hard work and imagination. It is, actually. It's, it's a very good way of describing what we do, I think. Yeah. I'm wondering as well, because that's, it's all you physicists and scientists, you lot, uh, doing that work. I want, do you ever work with, uh, you talk about making up weird ideas, which feels a lot like what my job is as an artist, and the, all the artists that are here at this festival, but is there any, do you ever collaborate with artists to come? I would suggest they'd come up with some really weird ideas. Um, we do. The, the artists are often interested in what we do, and there is an art program at CERN. Uh, we have a we have a Gormley statue in our lobby, for instance, because he was interested in that. Uh, I, I say a statue; it looks more like a piece of wire wool, but it's kind of there anyway. And um, I, I'm not convinced. Personally, I've never found art actually very helpful in doing new science. I find it helpful in appreciating and understanding what we do know and assimilating it. So then, probably, it does indirectly help the new stuff. But I don't, I, I don't know, some physicists may do, I, I'm not sure. What I do find, I used to be very scathing about philosophy, actually, about it not, not, um, not, not being very useful and going around in circles. But the work that I just described that I'm working on now and the particular approach we've taken is something that, which I'm working on now with two PhD students and two postdocs, is something that we cooked up at a meeting on the philosophy of science, which is I never would have thought that would have happened. So... People do it in different ways. I, I, I find art important, but not, not really for stimulating the ideas, more for assimilating the ideas, I would say. Sounds like a challenge to me. I'm going to buy you a cider when we've closed up the shed and, and give you some ideas. Well, cider definitely <laughs> helps. You never asked me that. <laughs> Cooking up the ideas in the pub. Look, it's, tell you, we'll take one more question, because I'll just say as well, John, you're not going to run away when we close the shed, are oh, you? Oh, no. So if you don't... I'll sign books if you want as well. I, I, was getting, I was getting there, I was getting there, I was getting there. If you don't get an opportunity to ask a question from John right here, right now, and you want to, he's not going to run away, so come and badger him for a bit before we go off for a cider. And after you've bought his book, a signed copy of it's your... not compulsory. I'll still answer questions anyway. <laughs> but that would be the best way to do it. Go on, tell us what the book is. The book is it's my description of, of what I do in my in my job. So a lot of it is what we've just been discussing. What's really was a privilege in it is that I got hooked up with an illustrator, and it turns out I think of this uh, of physics is shining the torch thing. I think of it really as a map of exploring. The, the kind of invisible universe, the subatomic world. And this guy drew these maps from my head. And, the, and so it's a kind of tour through this map of particle physics and finishing with the, on the East Coast where we're exploring lands that we don't even know if they're there or not. That's cool. That sounds like you were working with an artist to come up with new ways of describing... I was giving him the ideas. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so the book sounds great. Um, like I say, John isn't going to be running away. At six o'clock this evening, we're going to be opening the shed. Dr. Rob Appleby, 
who's who was that? Um, he's he's going to be ready. spinning some tunes. So come back for that. We've got more scientists with us tomorrow. I'll be telling the story of how I hacked my way into space. Thank you very much for coming out. Would you please give a massive latitude round of applause to Professor John Butterworth? Thank you. I like him too, MJ. Uh-huh. Can we go to CERN? I'd love to go to CERN. I mean, we'd probably have to be invited, though. Uh-huh. John could invite us. What a great idea. Maybe he'll listen to this, hear that you'd like to go to CERN and maybe get a commission with their arts programme and we can make something super cool with them and get paid for it as well. Uh-huh. It would be cool, MJ. Let's see what happens. Thanks for listening to this episode of Live from the Spaceship. Next time, I'm chatting with space engineer Abby Hutty. She's the lead structures engineer on the European Space Agency's ExoMars rover, due to launch to Mars in 2020. Yeah, yeah, there were some technical issues with the spaceship that day, yes, but I think we dealt with them like true astronauts. Exactly, MJ. Work the problem. Subscribe to Live from the Space Shed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts to find out just how shambolic we can be. You can follow us on Twitter and on Instagram at untheatre, that's UN Theatre. You can find full details and social links at our website, thespaceshed.com. Live from the Space Shed is an unlimited theatre production with season one brought to you in association with the Science and Technologies Facilities Council, the Cockcroft Institute, the Space and Arts Council England, with special thanks to Dr. Rob Appleby of Manchester University. Our theme music is Go by Public Service Broadcasting, used with their extremely kind permission. Our sound engineer and editor is Andy Wood, with additional sound design by Elena Pena. The show is produced by John Spooner and Alice Massey, with support from our friends at Story Things. Live from the Space Shed is an unlimited theatre production on behalf of the Unlimited Space Agency. See you for more Live from the Space Shed soon. <laughs>